Today I'm going to start teaching on grace and faith as related to the subject of giving and receiving. Normally when I teach that, I'm applying about healing or personal relationship with God or a lot of different things. But I'm going to take these same principles and apply them directly to this subject of giving. And here again is an explanation of why I'm doing this. Some of you think, but I've heard you teach on this before. Uh, Have you ever seen one of these things like when you were a kid, you'd get a piece of paper and on it would be all of these dots. They just have dots all over the page. And beneath each dot would be a number. And what you had to do was go and connect the dots. You go from one to two, three, four, five, etc. And by the time you get through connecting all of the dots, there is an image, a picture of something on the page that you couldn't see when there were just dots there. Everything was there, but you hadn't connected the dots, and so therefore you couldn't really make out what the picture was all about. Well, in a sense, I believe that that's the way that a lot of Christians are. They hear a teaching like on righteousness over here and their personal relationship with God, and then they hear a teaching on on healing over here and another one on marriage and this and that, and they've got all of this little pieces of information, but they've never connected the dots, and they don't have a whole picture They don't see the completeness of what's going on. And so here's the logic behind what I'm doing. I really believe that it's important that you relate your giving to the grace of God and understand that when you pay your tithes or when you give gifts, that that doesn't make God give back to you. But instead, all you're doing is taking a step of faith that is putting you over into a position where God's grace has already provided all of your prosperity and everything. Now that's important. I believe that you get the right motivation. One of the scriptures that I've used is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, that says, Though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and even though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. That's saying that if you make the ultimate sacrifice of even burning your body or give all of your goods to the poor and don't do it motivated by love, then you profit nothing. If you are giving in order to make God do something, that's not motivated by love. That's basically motivated out of carnality and love for self, not love for God. And this is why a lot of people haven't seen the financial prosperity that God has promised them is because their motives are all wrong. So you've got to purify your motives and make sure that when you give, you aren't just trying to force God to do something. I've heard people use this exact terminology before, that through faith you can make God do this. I want you to know that faith doesn't move God. If God hasn't already chosen to move by His grace then your faith can't make anything happen. All faith does is appropriate what God has already provided by grace. If grace hasn't provided it, faith can't get it. Faith doesn't move God. God moves totally by His grace. That means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. God provided things for us completely independent of our performance. But does that mean that our performance has nothing to do with our receiving? No, your performance does because your performance is how you release faith. But faith just reaches out and appropriates what God has already provided by grace. Now, I'm going to be explaining this in a lot more detail, but that in a nutshell is some of the main points that I want to get across. Look over in Ephesians 
chapter 2. This is a familiar passage of Scripture to a lot of people. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Verse 9, Not of works, lest any man should boast. This verse says that you are saved by grace through faith. You aren't saved by grace alone, and you aren't saved by faith alone. You are saved by a combination of the two, grace through faith. You know, here's another passage of Scripture that will go along with this. This was the Apostle Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians and in chapter 15. I'll have to find the verse here, but I believe it's um, verse 10. It says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul here was talking about how he was not even worthy to be called an apostle because at one time he had actually persecuted Christians and put them to death. And he says, I don't deserve anything. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. He's implying that just because God extends grace towards you does not mean that you are necessarily going to prosper. Because you have to mix faith with that grace. And so therefore he said, I labored more abundantly than they all. In other words, it was just totally the grace of God that called Paul to be a Christian and then into the ministry instead of killing him. Justice would have demanded that God kill him. But God by grace extended mercy to him, but... God's grace had a greater impact in Paul's life and through Paul than many people because he labored. He also added to the grace of God his faith. And this is what it's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the passage I just read. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is God's grace that saves us. But your faith is how that grace impacts your life. Here's another way of saying it. Over in, uh, let me see, I think this is Titus chapter 2. Let me find this passage of Scripture. Titus chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 10. It says, um, well, that's not it. Verse 11, for by the grace of God, for the grace of God, that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says the grace of God has appeared unto all men. Now, if God's grace alone saved you, then every single person would be saved because God's grace that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Now, this right here ought to prove to you that it's not just up to the grace of God whether you receive or not. God by grace provides things. But then faith reaches out and takes hold of what God has provided by grace. And faith brings what is real by grace into physical manifestation. Man, that is a powerful statement. If that didn't ring your bell, you probably weren't listening. You know, it took me 20-something years to figure that out. But praise God, I finally got it. God, by grace, has already accomplished everything He's going to ever do. 
but it doesn't automatically come to pass in your life. You have to access God's grace by faith. Again, Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says we have access into this grace by faith. So you aren't saved by grace alone and you aren't saved by faith alone. You're saved by a combination of the two. It's very similar to sodium and chloride. Sodium and chloride are both poison. If you eat enough sodium, if you eat enough chloride in sufficient quantities, it'll kill you. Both of these things are poisonous. But you mix them together and you get sodium chloride or what we call salt and you'll die without it. Two poisons combined properly become essential to life. And you know, that's the way that it is. Some people over here just preach grace, 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 and it's totally the grace of God. You have zippo, zilch, not a zero to do with it. Well, in one sense, that's true. God's grace is independent of us and independent of our performance. But that grace doesn't automatically function in your life if there isn't faith on your part. So you've got to access God's grace through faith. It's a combination of the two. On the other hand, you have some people that all they do is talk about what you've got to do. You've got to do this. You've got to pray. You've got to study. You've got to go to church. You've got to pay your tithes. You've got to do this, this, and this. And all of those things, if they are done properly and, and put in the grace of God, if you are giving, finance is not in order to make God bless you, but you give believing that God has already commanded the blessing. And here's proof that I really believe it. I'm going to give a portion because I know that what God said is true and it's going to come to pass. If your faith is in what God has already done by grace, well, then that's a proper thing. But if you just start preaching what you need to do and you do this, this, and this, thinking that when I, after I've done this, my faith will move God and make God do something, then you're missing it. When you give, it's not like you give and then God responds to you. But God, before you ever had a need, has already provided everything by grace. But that grace won't release its power in your life until you appropriate this grace by faith. So you do have to give. Giving is a step of faith. And when you give in faith, believing that God, you've already prospered me now, I'm just taking a step of faith. I trust you. And to prove that I trust you, I'm going to take a portion of what I've got and give it away, believing that your promises are true. You're going to multiply it back to me, and I'll actually have more than when I kept 100% of it. See, if it's a true step of faith in God's grace that it's already done, then you will see a supernatural supply. So this scripture that I was using in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, You're saved by grace through faith, not one or the other, but a combination of the two. Now, if you go back and apply this to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that verse that I used earlier, it says, The grace of God that, that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. If grace alone saved, if there had to, if there, it wasn't necessary for us to have a positive response of faith on our part. If it was just the grace of God, whoever got saved, then you know what? Every single person on the face of the earth would have been saved because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. But we know through Jesus' own teaching that He said that there would be more enter in by the broad gate unto destruction than by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. Jesus said that the majority of people are not going to receive salvation. Why? Because God hadn't provided it? No, by grace, 
The grace that brings salvation has already appeared unto all men. The atonement has been made for every single person. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world. The grace of God has already paid the debt. The grace of God has purchased salvation for every single person. Not only those who God foreknew would accept Him, but every person has had their sins paid for. The grace of God has brought that salvation and appeared unto every person. But not every person receives. Matter of fact, the majority of people don't receive. Not because God's grace isn't there, but because they didn't put faith in God's grace. Man, that is one powerful truth. This teaching has changed my life. I don't know if you're getting this because the things that I'm saying, it's so easy to say and it seems like it's harder to comprehend because we don't have a real example of grace and faith in our world. Really, the only person who treats us by grace on a consistent basis is God. There is nobody else that does this. And so because there's not a role model, a physical person that we can see, most people just can't grab this. You have to meditate in these truths, take the Word of God, and allow the Holy Spirit to just show you these things by faith. And you have to grab hold of this. But most people struggle with this because it's just so contrary to their normal existence. But God has already done everything by grace. Before you were ever born, Jesus died for your sins. Before you ever got sick, Jesus bore the chastisement for your healing in His physical body. You were healed 2,000 years ago, before you ever existed, before there was ever a sickness to be healed of. Before you ever have a financial need, God has already made Jesus poor so that we through His poverty might be made rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. God has moved through Jesus. Through Jesus, by His own free choice and volition, He chose to provide healing, prosperity, salvation, deliverance, all of these things. He's already done it. He's already released His power. That's grace, independent of you. It didn't have anything to do with your goodness or worth because you didn't even exist when Jesus came and provided all of these things. So does that mean that since God by grace has already provided it, that everybody's going to be prosperous, everybody's going to be healthy, everybody's going to be saved, everybody's going to be delivered? No, because you have to appropriate God's grace by faith. Now, if you can understand this, this is tremendous. Because see, I used to think that, well, I've got to speak the Word of God. I've got to pray. I've got to study the Word. I've got to do these things. And when I do enough good things, then God sees that. And my faith moves God and God will respond and grant me my finances, my prosperity, my healing, deliverance, whatever. But no, that's not true. God has already done it. And what I have to do is study the Word, not in order to affect God's grace or His heart. I study the Word to affect me, to make me more sensitive to God. I have to start giving, not because God waits to see if I give, and then if I give, then God will begin to start commanding a blessing upon me. No, God has already commanded the blessing, but I can't get it except through faith. And so I have to take a step of faith, which is giving, and then God's finances begin to flow. 
If you don't understand what I'm saying right here, if this doesn't make sense to you, this is one of the reasons that you aren't seeing the power of God manifest much more. If this is like, uh, you know, speaking a different language, it's not communicating to you, well, then that means that you haven't really got a working revelation of the grace of God and you're still under this mentality that you do one, two, and three, and then God responds and does this. I'm telling you, God doesn't respond to your faith. Here's another way of saying it. That true faith is not something you do to gain a response from God. But true faith is your positive response to what you believe God has already done by grace. Man, that is powerful. I'm going to say that again because that just blessed me. This took me a long time to figure this out. But true faith is not something you do to get God to respond to you. But true faith is some, your positive response to what you believe God has already done by grace. Now, if you ever get that confused, and if you ever start feeling like, well, man, I've got to start confessing the word, and I've got to pray, and I've got to go to church, and I've got to pay my tithes, and if I'll do these things, then maybe God will do this. Then see, that's not true faith. What you call that scripturally, the scriptural terminology for that is legalism, works mentality. And that will not release the power of God. Matter of fact, that's really about the only sin that will stop the power of God. Your sin of of not paying your tithes and not reading the Bible and lying and stealing and any of these kind of things, God will not, that doesn't affect God's grace. Grace means it's independent of your performance. But the one sin that will stop the power of God is the sin of self-righteousness. The sin of trusting in your works and instead of trusting a Savior and looking to what He's done for you, you're going to try and make it happen because I paid my tithes. Now God's got to give to me. That's not faith. That's works. That's legalism. And I guarantee you that will stop the flow of God quicker than adultery will. Now those are some strong statements. And I know that I just bumped into some religious traditions that uh, there's people probably very upset, but that is the absolute gospel truth. That is the truth. That God loves you, and He's already provided all of these things by grace. But they don't just automatically come to pass. You need to study the Word. You need to pray. You need to live holy and do all of those things so that you can be in faith instead of fear and unbelief. And then that faith will appropriate what God has already provided by grace. But don't ever make the mistake. Don't get this confused and think that my actions caused God to do this because that no longer is faith if you think that. God does what He does by grace. Your actions have zero to do with what God has provided. By grace, God has already provided your need before you ever had one. But faith is just a positive response. It's things you do in order to receive what God has already done, not in order to get God to do something. And if you ever get confused on that issue, and if you start thinking, well, if I pay my tithes, now God's got to bless me because I paid my tithes. Well, you know what? You, in a sense, are trying to manipulate control God. You're using faith like a pry bar, a lever on God that will force God to do something. And that'll stop the power of God in your life in a heartbeat.
You know, I've had people come up to me by the thousands that say something like, well, how come God hasn't healed me? I've prayed, I study the Word, I pay my tithes, I've done this, this, and this. How come God hasn't healed me? Well, you told me why God hadn't healed you because you didn't point to what Jesus did for you by grace, but you pointed to what you've done and you have the mentality that this is going to make God heal me if I'll do enough right things. See, you think faith is something you do to move God. I'm telling you that is absolutely wrong. God is already moved by grace. He's already provided everything and your faith just reaches out and appropriates what God has already provided by grace. This concept is something that I find missing in most people's uh, life. They just haven't figured this out, and I'm not trying to criticize anybody else. It took me a long time, decades, before I got this figured out. I won't go back through the whole thing. This is an abbreviated teaching, but real quickly, let me just say that my personal testimony is that when I was 18 years old, I encountered God in a supernatural way. I'd already been born again at the age of eight, but when I was 18, God just showed me His love for me. And even though that was a wonderful experience, it was very confusing because I knew I didn't deserve it. And I spent a couple of decades trying to figure out, God, how could you love me? I don't love myself. I know I don't do everything right. I had a concept that God was absolutely holy and that I was absolutely unholy And let me just put a little parentheses here. Hold this thought, I'll come back. But some of you are saying, boy, you must have been terrible. Well, I was better than most people uh, in a comparative sense. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor, never smoked a cigarette. I mean, I was Mr. Righteous, but I still had come short of the glory of God. And I knew that I wasn't worthy of God loving me. And I just couldn't figure out how God could love me when I wasn't worth loving. I didn't understand the grace of God. And part of the problem was because I had this mentality that you had to do certain things. And then this, this is a dramatization. I know that people don't actually say it this way, but it'll help make my point. It was like you got so many stars on your chart for good works, reading your Bible, going to church, paying your tithes, not getting mad, not saying what you really feel, but forgiving this person. And you get all of these stars on your chart. And if you get enough stars, you could cash them in for a, you know, a gift from God. Amen. I know that most people don't actually think that way, but that's, I mean, that is descriptive of the mindset. They just don't look at it exactly the way I've described it. But most people really do think that God moves in their life based on how holy they live. And y'all don't look at me in that tone of voice. If I could see you right now, I know that that's the way you think because I deal with thousands of people and I've heard this over and over and over. People will come up and say, why hadn't God healed me? I pray, I fast, I study the Word, I pay my tithes, I go to, I'm doing everything I know how to do. How come God hasn't done this? Well, what you're revealing by a statement like that is that you think you do these things and then God, if you do enough good things, responds and grants you your petition. That is not it. This is what God showed me through grace and faith and I'm relating it directly to our giving. That God by grace does everything. He provides everything by grace. It is completely independent of your performance. If it's truly grace, then it's something that is done independent of you. It was done through Jesus. Everything, all of the grace gifts that God has released 
into the earth came through Jesus. And uh, in case you haven't figured this out, Jesus lived nearly 2,000 years ago and provided everything through His atonement. And He isn't at the right hand of God now bearing our stripes and producing healing and granting prosperity and doing these things. Jesus did everything He did nearly 2,000 years ago and now He is seated at the Father's right hand. He isn't in the process of obtaining things for you. All of that was done 2,000 years ago by the grace of God. And if it was done 2,000 years ago through the atonement of Jesus, then that means it isn't based on your performance. But does that mean that what God purchased for you and what He did just automatically comes to pass in your life? No, it has to be a combination of grace and faith. And this is what I've been talking about. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Those verses say that God saved you by grace through faith. Before you were ever born, Jesus came to this earth, died for your sins, suffered your punishment, and salvation is a done, accomplished deal, not only for you, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world have been paid for by grace. But does that mean that they're everybody's saved? No, because you're saved by grace through faith. If you don't put faith in what Jesus has done and receive it by faith, then even though the purchase has been made, grace has been provided, it won't accomplish anything unless it's mixed with faith. It's a combination of those two. But some people get into a ditch over here with grace, talking about, well, it's just totally up to the grace of God. It's not your effort. It's not your holiness. It's a grace gift. Now, there's a measure of truth in that, but it's not all the grace of God because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. If grace alone saved, then every person would be saved. But not every person is saved because not everybody responds in faith. So some people get in a ditch over here talking about it's just the grace of God and that leads to a lazy living an unholy living, a living where we aren't seeking the things of God and building ourselves up because after all, it's just totally up to the grace of God. That's wrong. That's error. You know, all error is, is a truth taken to an extreme or to the exclusion of other truths. Now, that's a powerful statement. See, lots of people think error is when a person just totally disbelieves everything and it's totally wrong. No, for Satan to get his poison to you, he has to put it on something that there is an element of truth in. It's like, I know that some people think this is a little crude, but this is just the way I think, that nobody puts poison on dog mess because, you know what, nobody eats that except flies or maggots, but you don't poison dog poop because nobody would eat it. But if you put poison on a steak, somebody's going to die because people eat steak. And you have to put, if you're trying to kill a person, you'd have to put it on something that they would eat. Satan, see, has to take a truth and to get his poison across, he has to pervert that truth, just change it. So all error is, is really a truth taken to an extreme or a truth taken to the exclusion of other truths. It's not total error. 
Now that's important that you recognize this. And this is the way it is. Some people take truths about grace, but if you don't balance it with faith, well then it becomes error. And then other people take truths about faith and what you must do, but if you don't balance that with grace, then that becomes error and it kills people. You know, out where I live, I live on a dirt road. We have to drive down miles of dirt road to get to my house. And they have ditches on both sides of the road, deep ditches for drainage. And if you were to start into one of those ditches, like sometimes we get snow out there, and if you ever start sliding off the road and you're headed towards a ditch, you get stuck in that ditch. You know, you aren't going to be going anywhere. And so the tendency is if you see yourself heading towards a ditch, the tendency is to correct and typically overcorrect. Like I've seen a number of people go off the road and have to be pulled out by tow trucks and very seldom did they go into the ditch that they originally started sliding towards. But what they do is overcorrect and then they hit the ditch on the other side of the road. The point is that there's a ditch on both sides of the road and one ditch isn't better than the other ditch. If you want to go down the road and get to where you're going, you have to learn to go down the middle and avoid both ditches. And see, it's this way with truths from the Word. Grace taken by itself, that's a ditch over here. Faith taken by itself, it's a ditch over here. And either one of those will shipwreck your spiritual life. You've got to live in a balance of those two. You've got to stay between these two and keep them in balance. And most people tend to be one or the other. Today we have the grace camp, we have the faith camp, and things like that. I saw a guy's... Uh, materials, and I forget the exact title, but it was something like Deceived by Grace. And he was just blasting grace. And he's a faith teacher over here. Well, I'm sure that he's got some partial truths in there. But you know what? On the other hand, uh, there's people, I hadn't seen this, but I'm sure somebody talks about Deceived by Faith and preaching against the faith movement and all these kind of things. Either one of them are error if you take them to the exclusion of other truths. So what I'm trying to do is to present that God by grace has already done everything completely independent of your performance. But you have to perform. You have to act in faith over here to appropriate God's grace. If you go to emphasizing grace and say that it has nothing to do with you and your performance doesn't matter, well, then that's error. But on the other hand, if you're just talking about your performance and aren't emphasizing that God has already provided it and your performance doesn't make God do anything... God has already provided everything totally by His grace. All your performance is, is your step of faith reaching out and taking what has already been provided. If you don't look at faith that way, well, then faith becomes error. It becomes bondage. So there is a balance between these two. And I tell you, if you don't understand this, you will get into major, major problems in your Christian life. Let me just take an example here to illustrate what I'm talking about. Over in Mark chapter 11 and verse 24. You know, Mark chapter 11 verses 23 and 24 are those passages of Scripture that Kenneth Hagin wrote. Amen. (laughs) Not really. This is a joke. Don't write in and criticize me over that. I love Kenneth Hagin. I had not got a thing against him, but he used these passages of Scripture so much that some people think that Kenneth Hagin's the one that came up with these truths. But this is Jesus speaking, and he said this in Mark chapter 11, verse 24. He says, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. 
Now this is a powerful passage of Scripture. It's talking about faith and about what faith can do. And this says, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now, I want to use this to illustrate how some people have gotten off into a ditch with just faith teaching. And it's not because there's anything wrong with faith. It's because they put faith in what they were doing instead of faith in the grace of God. They didn't combine grace and faith together. This verse, on the surface, if you just take it the way that some people have taught it, this says, What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. This says whatsoever. You know what whatsoever means? It means whatsoever. And so some people have taken this and they just claim anything and everything. They pray. They say, I believe I receive right now. And then they feel like God is obligated to respond to them. And if they don't see the thing that they've prayed for come to pass, they get upset. I've had lots of people, I mean lots of people come to me and make this exact same point and they quote this scripture and I prayed this, I believed I received and God didn't do it. Well, first of all, if you say that, that shows that you don't understand this combination of grace and faith. You think that faith is something you do that makes God move and that's wrong. God moves solely on the basis of what He wants to do by grace. By grace is how God moves, and faith doesn't move God. Faith moves you over to where God's provision is. God already has made the provision by grace, and faith moves you. It doesn't move God. So a person who says, I did this, and God didn't respond, then see, you never understood grace and faith. You were operating in what you're calling faith is actually what the Bible calls legalism, works, performance, Dead works. And that is not acceptable to God. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. That there was actually a person in Arlington, Texas. That's where I grew up. And this person, a woman, started a Bible school. And in this Bible school, she this was one of the main verses. They were faith people. And they taught that, you know, you can move God. You can believe God. And they specifically took this verse. Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And you know what this woman's desire was? She wanted to marry Kenneth Copeland. Now that was her desire. And she says that's a whatsoever. So she claimed this verse. And to deal with the problem of Kenneth Copeland being married to Gloria Copeland, she just cursed Gloria, commanded her to die. And then she was waiting on Gloria to get out of the way. And then she believed that God was going to put her and Kenneth Copeland together. And um, she even went so far as they had a mock wedding where this woman dressed up in a wedding gown and had her Bible college students together and they were standing on the promise of whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And she married Kenneth Copeland in the spirit, not in the flesh. He wasn't there, but in her way of thinking, here she was taking a step of faith and she was going to receive Kenneth Copeland as her husband and cause Gloria Copeland to die and get out of the way. Now, most of you watching this program or listening by radio, you say, well, I don't believe that that's right. Well, why don't you believe it's right? You say, well, just common sense. That wouldn't work. Well, doesn't this say whatsoever you desire? Isn't wanting to marry a person of whatsoever? Here's my point. Instead of you just saying, well, it just doesn't feel right. 
Well, what would happen if somebody came along with something else that did feel right and yet it was incorrect? You need to be able to divide the word properly and decide on the basis of Scripture what is right and what is wrong. You know what's wrong with her trying to claim somebody else as her husband and curse the wife and command her to die and get out of the way? You know why scripturally that's wrong? Because Romans, I mean Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, the scripture I've been using, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Faith doesn't make God do anything. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. And see, the reason you can't misuse Mark eleven twenty four to claim another person as your mate and curse their wife and command them to get out of the way, the reason you can't do that is because God did not provide adultery and murder in the atonement. That isn't something that He's already provided by grace. And so you can quote all of the scriptures. You can go through the actions. You can buy a wedding gown. You could put a scripture up there and quote it, but it isn't going to happen if God hasn't already provided it. Faith doesn't make God do anything. God does everything of His own free will by grace. He's already provided it. And faith only appropriates what God has already provided. And see, God didn't provide adultery and He didn't provide murder. And that's the reason you could, that's the reason that woman couldn't use these passages of Scripture to perform, I mean, to affect that marriage. This is the reason, see, that you can't go out and say, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that I'm going to rob a bank and get away with a million dollars and they will not catch me because I confess it with my mouth and believe it in my heart. You know why that won't work? Because God, by grace, hasn't already provided thievery for you. He is not a thief and He didn't purchase that for you. That's not a part of what Jesus accomplished. And so therefore your faith can't make it happen. And on and on and on and on it goes. That's the reason that you just can't sit there and say, I claim this person is my mate. I claim this job. I claim that I'm going to have a million dollars. I confess it with my mouth and believe in my heart. If the Lord hasn't already provided those things for you, you can't make God do anything. This whole concept of faith basically paints God into a corner. You know, again, I know that some of you aren't aware of what I'm talking about, but many people raised in religion know all too well what I'm talking about. Because I guarantee you, I've been exposed to this. I've heard testimonies of people who just went in and they laid hold of God and they said, I will not leave here until you do what I ask you to do. You know what? That is not going to work. That is not how the kingdom of God works. You can't force God. You aren't bigger than God. You aren't stronger than God. You can't manipulate God. Paint God into any corner where He's got to do something. Intercession can't do that. Nothing can do that. God, by grace, has already provided everything. And all faith is, is just a trust, a reliance, a positive response to what you believe God has already done. Man, that is one powerful truth. And let's go back and apply all of this to this subject of giving. If you think that the reason God is going to prosper you is because I gave my tithes and I gave in this special offering and this person said that if I would give a thousand dollar prove me offering, then I can make God save this person or I can make God's blessing come to pass. 
See, anytime anybody gets to talking about your giving as you make this happen, you are going to make God. God is obligated. Now God's got to prosper you because you've done it. Anytime you ever hear anything like that, that's manipulation. And that's error. Because it's faith in your faith. And you are forcing God to do something instead of your faith just being a positive response to what God has already provided. See, you can't buy, you can't buy things. That harkens back to the indulgences of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and all of these kind of things. That's just wrong, wrong, wrong. God, by grace, has already provided everything. And the only reason that you need to act in faith and give is because it's a step of faith. And faith is your way of responding, receiving what God has already provided. Boy, if you miss that, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, it's going to hinder you tremendously in receiving from God. But if you can understand this and apply the grace of God to your giving, I guarantee you it'll cause you, you'll wind up giving more because you'll start giving out of love instead of out of debt and out of obligation. And you will start seeing a greater return off of your giving because you are now opening up the flow of God's grace. Now I'm going to go back and talk about the tithe. Because like I said at the beginning of this teaching, really it's not hard to understand grace and apply it to giving if you haven't been taught incorrectly. But if you've been taught wrong and had things grilled into you the way that I have, well then there was a lot of renewing of my mind and I had to change a lot of my attitude because giving wasn't voluntary really the way that I was brought up. It was something that you were obligated to do. You were cursed with the curse if you didn't do it. Now, let me show you where they get that mindset from. Out of Malachi chapter 3. This is in the Old Covenant. In Malachi chapter 3, it says in verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Now these verses are often used to teach on the tithe. And I certainly believe in them because they're in the Bible. But I also believe that the new covenant that we have is superior to this old covenant. And I believe that the, mo- the basic motivation behind these passages of Scripture isn't love. It's not giving cheerfully just whatever you purpose in your heart. But rather, this is a debt, an obligation. And I believe that that motivation for tithing is now over with. I can use a lot of Scriptures on this, but let me just use a real... Simple scripture that to me makes this very clear in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 13 it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This scripture says very clearly that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, what was the curse of the law? Well, there was a lot of different things, but one of them 
was that if you did not tithe, you were cursed with a curse right here in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 9. This is the law. This is a part of the curse. Now, I know that there's people who get very bent out of shape on this, and there's probably somebody listening right now who's saying, well, you're saying that the tithe is Old Testament and that we don't have to do it in the New Testament. No, that's not what I'm saying. The tithe is not just Old Testament. Before the law was put into effect, the law came into effect basically around Exodus chapter 20 when the Ten Commandments were given. And then after that, there were all of these other ordinances and rituals and feasts and things that had to be observed. But it began around Exodus chapter 20. In Genesis chapter 14, you can find an example of Abraham paying tithes in uh, Genesis chapter 14. This is when he came back from uh, delivering the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah from um, the kings that had come against them. And um, it says here in Genesis chapter 14 that he paid tithes unto Melchizedek. I'm trying to find this. In verse uh, 18, Genesis 14, 18, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hands. And he gave him, talking about Abraham, gave Melchizedek tithes of all. This is the first time in Scripture that tithing is ever mentioned. Now, it's possible that it was implied prior to this because, uh, like, for instance, Cain brought the first fruits of his offering to the Lord. And there are examples of other people offering uh, not just animal sacrifices, but, you know, uh, food sacrifices, which were a tithe off of their increase. So you could say that the example was there, and it's possible that God had communicated it somehow. But this is the first time that it is specifically spoken of that somebody paid tithes. And I want you to know that according to um, Galatians chapter 3, those passages we were reading over there, it says the law, which was 430 years after Abraham could not make the promise of none effect. So the law, the Ten Commandments, where you were commanded to tithe and you were commanded to do all of these other rituals and there was a curse placed upon you if you didn't do it, that was 430 years after this instance. So what I'm saying here is that tithing is not just an Old Testament principle. It is a Bible principle. It was in effect. People were paying tithes before the uh, law demanded it. And so I believe that tithing is something that was in effect before the law. And even though now we are free from the law and we are now serving God under grace, I believe that tithing is still a good principle. But here's the point that I'm making that the Old Testament law not only reinforced tithing, but placed a curse upon you if you didn't tithe. And the classic example is right here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 9. You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So uh, the law not only continued the tithe, but placed a curse on it. And according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 12, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. I don't believe that we are under a curse if you don't tithe. And I know that I'm departing from a lot of people because they base everything on Malachi chapter 3 and they say it says right here that you're cursed because you have robbed me, even this whole nation. 
Well, let me just uh, go back and look at this. Look at this scripture closely. In verse 8, it says, Well, a man robbed God, yet you have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Now, how many of you have ever heard somebody talk about that you're cursed if you don't tithe? Probably most of you would have to say, I've heard somebody talk about that. Have you ever heard somebody teach that you're also cursed if you don't pay more than a tithe, that if you don't give offerings? And I had a friend of mine look this up. I've not personally done this, but he said that he added up the offering that had to be offered every time you had a male child, the new moon, the day of atonement, uh, the feast of tabernacles, just every sacrifice that was demanded and commanded in the uh, scriptures. And he said that according to his figure, it amounted to about one third of their income. So if you're going to really teach that you're cursed if you don't tithe, then according to the scripture, you're going to also have to say that you're cursed if you don't give offerings probably up to 33%. Now see, if you're going to preach this verse and if you're going to say that this is in effect and you're under a curse if you don't tithe, where are you going to draw the line? Are you going to start preaching that a person that gives less than 33% of their income is under a curse? See, most people who preach this and preach that we're still under a curse and that this still applies to us, they just selectively say that it applies to the tithe and they just uh, conveniently omit the fact that it also says that you're robbing God if you don't pay these offerings. You know, under the Old Testament... God was very strict in enforcing these things. But under the new covenant, it doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to give tithes and that we aren't supposed to give offerings. It just means that now God's not going to curse you. God's not angry at you. Your sins have been atoned for. But you still should be tithing. And you should still be giving offerings, but you shouldn't be giving it with this debt mentality out of a sense of obligation. Because again, I go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where it says, Let every man... Give as he purposeth in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be tithing. I'm just saying that this debt mentality, this cursed if you don't tithe mentality needs to change. God's not angry at you if you don't give. Now Malachi chapter 3 says that you're robbing God if you don't pay tithes and offerings, not just tithes, but if you pay less than 33% of your income, according to Malachi chapter 3, you're robbing God and you're under a curse. And some people still try and teach this selectively. They will just kind of conveniently omit the offerings part, but they'll say, if you don't tithe, you're under this curse. But I believe that according to Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse. So does this mean that because there's no longer any punishment involved, because God's not going to be angry, God's not going to blast you if you don't tithe, does this mean that you don't pay your tithes and that you don't give offerings? Absolutely not. It just means that no longer is it dictated or demanded. You know, I'm not sure that I can get this across to you in just a short period of time here, but let me try and use an illustration that I was raised in Arlington, Texas, and the street in front of our house was a pretty busy street. And my mother, my dad died when I was 12, but I mean, uh, and he was sickly even before that, so my mother is basically the one that corrected me and did most of everything. And uh, anyway, my mother used to beat me within an inch of my life if I ever started to go out into that street or cross that street without looking both ways. You know, I was a kid, we'd be playing and the ball would go out in the street and I'd have a tendency to run out there 
and I stood a chance of getting run over. And so anyway, my mother just made this one of the things. She drew a line in the sand. And if I ever, ever, ever thought about crossing the street without looking both ways, I was going to get a whipping. And I mean, I got a whipping a number of times. And so when I was young, you know the reason that I looked both ways? It wasn't to keep from getting hit by a car. It was to keep from getting hit by my mother. (laughs) It was to avoid that spanking. And that really wasn't the right thing. But when you're young, that's what you respond to. You know, if you try and respond to a little child by reasoning with them, let's say, for instance, a one-year-old child, and uh, some of you have heard me use this illustration, but I just can't think of a better one. I think it's a great illustration. But if you try and take a one-year-old child and reason with them about, don't take this toy from your brother or your sister because that's selfish. And Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So instead of you responding to Jesus, you're actually letting the devil dominate you. And if Satan dominates you and if you give place to that, he's going to make you a selfish person. Nobody's ever going to want to be your friend. When it comes time to get married, nobody will ever want to marry you because marriage isn't 50-50. It's 100-100. You have to learn to give. And See, if you went on through and talked about life's issues and marriage and and uh, employment and all of this stuff to a one-year-old. It's just like the lights are on, but nobody's home. They don't understand that. You can't reason. You can't explain it. But you know what a one-year-old can't understand? You just tell them, say, so you take that toy from your sibling again, and I'm going to give you a spanking. And they may not even know that there is a God or devil, heaven or hell, but the next time that voice comes inside of their head saying, go take that toy They'll say, no, you can get them to resist the devil without even realizing it's the devil they're resisting. But because of a fear of punishment, they will do the right thing. And you that's what you have to do. And if you wait and say, oh, I would never hit a child. I just believe that you're supposed to reason with them and stuff like that. Well, that's the reason you have terrible twos. Because around the time a kid gets around two or three and they begin to start understanding and comprehending and you can talk to them, well, by then they've already established totally selfish patterns that you haven't corrected and you've indulged and that's the reason they call it the terrible twos. You know, you have an obligation to help that child learn to do what's right, not necessarily because they can reason it all out and think it out, but just because they respond to you. You know, another example of this is my oldest son, Joshua. When he was little, we trained our kids. And I mean, from a very young age, we taught them yes and no, and you obey me. And uh, as they grow, they're supposed to get to where they understand these things on their own. But when they're little, that's actually for their benefit, for their safety. And an example of what I'm talking about is that we were walking down a dirt road one day in Childress, Texas, and Joshua must have been... I don't know, 20 or 30 yards in front of us. It was a dirt road. Hardly anybody was ever out there. And there were big old um, weeds that were, say, three or four feet high. We could see over them, but Joshua, at two years old, could not see over these weeds. So he was running down this dirt road, and all of a sudden we saw a cloud of dust coming up, and here came a car that must have been going 60 miles an hour on this dirt road. It was just totally out of control. And we all of a sudden realized that this car and Joshua were going to come to this intersection at the exact same time. And the car was coming so fast that I couldn't run and catch Joshua and restrain him. And so you know what I had to do? I just yelled and I said, Joshua, stop! 
And I mean, boom, just like that. I mean, in mid-stride, he just stopped because we had taught him to obey us. He didn't do it because he understood why I told him to stop. He didn't discuss it. He didn't ask any questions. He had just learned to obey. And you know what? That is beneficial. And it literally saved his life. And in contrast to that, there was a woman in our church who had a granddaughter that she was raising and she couldn't corral this kid and she never spanked this kid and never disciplined them. And as a result, that kid ran out in the road a couple of times and nearly got run over and she thought that she was being kind. She actually was putting that kid's life at risk because she didn't teach it right and wrong and to respond to yes and to no. So anyway, here's the point. When a child is young, you can't reason with them. You just tell them yes and no. You say, you cross that street again and I'm going to give you a spanking. And I learned how to obey just out of fear of getting a spanking. But now I'm 55 years old. And if, say for instance, I was doing something, talking to you, and we walked across the street, and I got to the other side safely and I survived it, and if all of a sudden it dawned on me, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't look both ways before I crossed the street, What would you think if I was to get down on my knees and say, oh, please, 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 please don't tell my mother. She's 92. She's liable to beat me within an inch of my life. You know what? If I had to, I could take my mother right now. Amen. I could defend myself. The reason I now look both ways when I cross the street isn't because I'm afraid of my mother. It's because I've realized now that I didn't want to get run over by a truck or a car. Do you see this? And so here's the logic behind giving. In the Old Testament, before people were born again and could have spiritual discernment and understanding, God said, do this, and He put penalties on it and punishments such as curses and things like this to make people comply. They didn't comply because they loved God and because they understood anything, but rather they just did it because they were afraid a bolt of lightning was going to strike them if they didn't do it. That was the motivation under the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, the Lord says, and I've already used this verse, but 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, says, Let every man give as he purposeth in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You aren't supposed to be giving a tithe or an offering just as a debt to, to uh, you know, get away from the curse of God. That's the wrong motive. In the Old Covenant, yes, it was done that way. And it was done that way for a reason. Because we were so spiritually dull, we couldn't figure it out. So God just said, do this, and if you don't, I curse you. But in the New Covenant, if you don't tithe, you aren't cursed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse. But you're stupid if you don't tithe. Amen. (laughs) I know some of you are offended by that. I don't mean it bad, but I'm just saying that It's stupid if you don't tithe because the Lord says that when you give, it shall be given back unto you. It says bring all the tithes into the storehouse right here in Malachi chapter uh, 3 and verse 10 and see, prove me, see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you won't even have room enough to receive it. Man, if that's true and if God is going to bless you and finances are going to multiply and grow, you'd be absolutely stupid not to tithe. But God loves you, stupid. God's not mad at you anymore. I'm not saying that we aren't supposed to tithe, but I'm saying this Old Testament mentality of I've got to do this to pay God off, to buy my protection, and that leads to thinking that if I'll do this, then God will bless me another time. No, God has already blessed you. God has already commanded the blessing. He already loves you. 
He's already provided for you. He's already redeemed you from the curse. God's not going to punish you. God's not going to rebuke you if you don't tithe. You're just stupid if you don't tithe. That's like a person who, you know, has seed. And you should plant some of your seed and plan on a crop coming up. But, you know, if you eat all of your seed, nobody's going to be mad at you, but you're going to get hungry. And you're going to have to go beg food from somebody else because you ate all of your seed. There's no reason for anybody to be mad at you, but you're just stupid if you plant all of your seed instead of, I mean, if you eat all of your seed instead of planting some of it. Well, it's the same thing with finances. God's not mad at you if you don't give, but you are hurting your own prosperity. You aren't operating in faith. You aren't taking that step of faith that says, man, I trust these promises that when I give, God's going to bless me back a hundredfold. If you really believed you got a, would get a hundredfold return on everything you gave, you would give as much as you possibly can. The reason you aren't giving more is because you don't really believe in the hundredfold return, or I can guarantee you, you would. But is God mad at you if you don't know? No, it's just that you're stupid. Amen. <laughs> Let me just give you an illustration of what we're talking about here. Uh, I know that there's people on both sides of this issue who get offended at me. Because I even say that we are supposed to still tithe the people who are really strong, 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 I believe overbalanced into grace, will sit there and say that you don't have to do anything. God loves you irresponsive to your uh, actions. And so there's some people that get mad that I even admit that there is a tithe and that we should tithe today. On the other hand, there are people that if I say you aren't cursed, they get mad at me because of that. I get Get it from both sides on this issue. But let me just give this illustration. That there was a man who worked for me. His name's Larry Yonker. And he's actually one of the very first managers that we had of this ministry back in the very beginning. And this has been 20-something years ago, back in the 80s. And uh, Larry and his wife, Kim, both worked. And I'm not sure exactly what they made, but I think it's over 3000 maybe 3000 $3,500 a month 20-something years ago. That was good income. But they had been saved not too long, and they were paying a tithe, not with a full understanding, just thinking that, you know, I've got to pay down to the last penny, and they would give their check down to the last 23 cents or whatever. They just wrote out a 10%. It was like debt. It was obligation, because that's what they had been taught. You know, the Bible says in Romans 10:17. so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so uh, you can't have faith for something that you haven't heard ministered from Scripture. And they just hadn't heard it ministered properly about what the tithe was and what the New Testament motivation behind the tithe was. So prior to that time, they had been faithfully paying this tithe, and yet they were struggling financially, even though they made a very good income in those days. And uh, because of it, they, they they were paying their tithes, but they were struggling, and it seems like they were always running short of money. After hearing me teach on this, the Lord convicted Larry and he just said, you know, from now on, I'm not going to give just a tithe and write it out and pay it like a bill, like a debt. He says, I'm just going to start giving as I purpose in my heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. And as I feel God lead me, I'm going to start giving. And so he just quit paying a tithe as such. And what he did was just start giving when he decided, when he felt led to give, motivated to give. And over a period of about six months or something, they wound up having more money than they had ever had. All of their bills were paid. They had some money set aside. They were beginning to prosper more than they had ever prospered before. 
And Larry said that he just figured that, well, I must not have been giving 10%. That's the reason we got more money. I haven't been giving as much. But he did all of his giving by check. So what he did was go back and add up the checks and see exactly what percentage he had given. And you know what had happened when he just started giving as he purposed in his heart? He jumped from the 10% tithe that was debt and obligation to where he was giving 25%. He increased his giving two and a half times greater than what it was, and yet now they were blessed in a way that they weren't before, and it was because they purified their motives in this thing. I hope you get what I'm saying here. I know that there are some of you that you just pay your tithes. It's like one of the bills and you make sure that you do it and you never miss it and it's a debt and it's an obligation and there's no cheerfulness, there's no joy, there's no love in it. It's just like you've come to grips with it, like, God, I've got to do this, and you pay that tithe. But according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, it says if you give all of your goods to feed the poor or if you give your body to be burned, and don't do it motivated by God's kind of love, it profits you nothing. And there are some of you that, I mean, you put your tithe check in every time the bucket comes by. You are faithful, 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 but your motive behind it, this debt mentality, has canceled any benefit that it's ever going to produce in your life. There are some of you that are poor, that are not seeing God's blessing come to pass, not because you haven't given, but because you've given with the wrong motivation. And I tell you, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, is the New Testament counterpart to Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You have to renew your mind and begin to start giving, not in order to get God to do something, not in order to pay Him protection money where He'll rebuke the devourer for you, but instead you start giving because you believe that God has already done everything. Through Christ, He's already commanded a blessing on you. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says we are already blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has already blessed you financially and you aren't giving to try and make God do something to force Him, to paint Him into a corner, but instead you are giving, believing that God has already supplied everything you'll ever need and all you got to do is just trust Him. And so the way you trust Him is by taking a portion of what you have and giving it back to the Lord and depending on those promises that when you give, it's given back unto you. And see, if you would do that, and if you would purify your motive behind this, you would find out that, praise God, you would have more joy in your giving. It would be like Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's not more blessed if you are doing it out of debt and obligation, grudging and saying, I've got to do this or God won't bless me. Well, then it's not more blessed. But if you could start purifying your motives and giving with the right heart, then you could literally come to a place that it's more blessed for you to give than it is to receive. You enjoy giving more than you enjoy receiving. While we're on this, let me just go down to Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. And this not only tells you about tithes and offerings, but it tells you where you're supposed to give your tithes and offerings. Here in Malachi 3, 10, it says, "...bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts." If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. There's a couple of things I want to say. First of all, in verse 11 where it says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. 
I've heard people teach that if you will start tithing, this is the only time that God will rebuke the devil for you. Every other time, you have to resist the devil. You have to fight against the devil. But this case, there is a special blessing for the tither that God literally rebukes the devourer, talking about Satan, for you. Well, I don't believe that that is true for the New Testament believer. In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament saints could not rebuke the devourer because they didn't have authority over the devil. They they weren't in our... Uh, category. They weren't in our league. But in the New Testament, we have authority over the devil. And if you are depending on your ties to cause God to fight Satan for you so that you don't have to resist the devil and speak against the devil, that's simply not going to work. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In the New Testament, you have to resist the devil. In the Old Testament, there were no promises about resisting the devil because they didn't have authority over the devil. All they did was just serve God and God would, as they would yield to Him and trust Him, God would rebuke the devourer for their sakes. But in the New Testament, even though God has provided prosperity for us, you have to take your authority and you have to resist and speak to the devil and command him to leave. And look in verse 10 here. It says... Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Now most people, most preachers preach that this is talking about the church. And I really don't have a problem with that teaching if it's a good church. Because I believe that a church is a storehouse in a way that no ministry like mine, a television ministry or a Bible college or anything like that, I believe that a church can minister to people infinitely better than I can. And so if it is a good church, then I would say, well, that's where your storehouse is. But in its simplest terms, a storehouse is where people put their food. It's like the barn is what we would call it today. You stockpile all of your hay or your corn that you've harvested and things like this. You put them in a silo or you put them in a barn. And this is saying to bring all of this food, all of your tithes, into the storehouse. A storehouse is where you store your food and where when you're hungry, you go to get fed. Now, I believe that a church should feed people uh, much better than what I can. You know, I come into your home, if you are available, if you listen, five days a week for 30 minutes, but that's a total of two and a half hours. A church, if you were really plugged into a church, you could go two and a half hours in one service. Plus, a church can provide things that I could never provide. And that is, they would have youth ministry, children's ministry. They would baptize and bury and produce, uh, perform marriages and minister to you. If somebody gets sick, it says, call for the elders of the church. You can't call me. I'm not going to be able to go where you are. Everybody needs a local church. And if you are in a good local church, they can minister to you in a depth and at a level that I can't do. I don't think I'm inferior to the church. I don't think that the uh, church is inferior to me. It's just a different ministry, a different calling. But a church, if it's functioning properly, should be able to minister to you much more than what I'm able to do. So therefore, if it's a good church then I'd say, you know what, you need to take your tithes into the church and then you give an offering to ministries like this that feed you and that God uses in your life. 
And so I would agree with the way that most people teach this. But here's what I disagree with. And that is that a lot of people just say that the church is the storehouse, period. And they say all churches are this, that your tithe should always go into the local church first. Well, I say that if you've got a good local church that is really hidden on all cylinders, well then, yes, I would agree with that. But you know what? There's a lot of local churches that aren't any good. And I hate to say that, but it's true. I've been in churches where the... uh, I've been in denominations where they are licensing homosexual ministers. They are standing up for values that are against the Word of God. There's churches that support abortion, the killing of the unborn. There are churches that promote homosexual agendas that are uh, for everything that God is against. And just because it says church, just because the person has their collar turned around backwards, does not mean that they are true representatives of God. And if you are in a local church that for whatever reason, because you're, you're there because your grandmother's got her name engraved on one of the pews and she bought it and it's where everybody in your family has been raised and so whatever reason you're still in that church... And if it's not preaching the true gospel, if it's just putting people into religious bondage, I'm telling you, don't put your money into that. You should not be putting your money into that. Here's a way that you just discern it. Where are you being fed? If you are in a local church that is ministering the true word of God and has Sunday school classes for you and for your family and will perform weddings and come pray for you when you get sick and anoint you with oil and raise people from the dead and all of these kind of things. If you're in a local church like that, yes, your money should be going there. But if you are in a dead church, no, your money shouldn't be going there. If you are having to come to my television program or somebody else's television program, or if you're having to get tapes and books, and that's where you're being fed, and you go to a church that is dead, and yet you put your tithes into there because you've been told that the storehouse here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 is the local church, then I think you are absolutely violating all of the principles of God's Word that lead us about our giving. You are supposed to give where you're fed. And if you're in a good local church, it can feed you more than anybody else. So bring your tithes into there and use offerings and things above your tithes to help the work of the ministry in other areas. But if you are in a dead local church, in a church that is just religious and putting people in bondage, in the first place, get out of there and find yourself a good local church. But if, for whatever reason, you're staying in that dead church, don't put your tithes into it. And somebody says, well, I know it's really not the best and I'm sorry about the way it's going, but... I just believe that I've got to put my tithes into the church. I don't think it's doing any damage. You know what you're doing? You're subsidizing that. You are a partaker in what they're teaching. When a person gives to my ministry, did you know that they get to partake in what I'm doing of the anointing of God that's on my life, the blessing of God that's flowing through me? This power and this anointing begins to flow through my partners, the people who partnership with me. And the same is true in a negative way, that if you join up with a church that isn't preaching the truth, you are a partner in that. All of the negative things, the demonic things that are being released through the wrong doctrines, you are a part of that. And so, no, it's important that you put your money in the right place. How can you tell whether it's really a place that is worthy of you giving your tithes? Well, just answer this simple question. Where are you being fed? You don't eat at Wendy's and then go across the street and pay McDonald's. You pay where you get your food. 
Where are you being fed? Again, if you're in a church that's not feeding you and you're having to come to my television program, the first thing I'd say is get out of that church and find you a good church. But until you do, and until you get in a church that is feeding you properly, then you know what? You ought to put your tithes where you're being fed. And it would just thrill me if nobody ever gave tithes to me, if everybody was in a local church and all their tithes went to them and then they just gave extra over and above to our ministry. That would thrill me because that would mean that the local church is healthy and strong and that would be great. But I'm not naive. I know that that's not the way it is. And because of that, you know what? There are people that do send their tithes to me. And uh, because of that, I take them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, the typical pastor would be very offended at this because they just want me to say that, no, you always put your tithe into the local church. I don't believe that every local church is a storehouse. I don't believe that every local church is feeding the people, certainly not feeding them good things. And so I believe it needs to be a little bit stricter than that. You need to give your tithes where you're fed. You know, I went to a local church, and when this thing with Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker came up and it was told about how they had misappropriated funds and all this, income to parachurch ministries dropped dramatically. And this pastor of the church that I go to, he got up and he said, this is what I'm telling you, you should never give money to any outside church ministry. You ought to give all of your money to this church and we will see to it that all of these parachurch ministries get taken care of. And when he said that, I just nearly laughed out loud. In the first place, there's over 6,000 parachurch ministries. Now, how is he going to know how to evaluate and fund every one of those single church ministries? That can't be done. Plus, it's not good uh, training for the people to not be led by God and where they're supposed to give. Just give it to the pastor and let him do it. That's inefficient. That is not what the Scripture says. I tell you what, you should give the lion's share of your finances to a good local church. But if you aren't in a good local church, then give where you're fed. And if that means giving it to some uh, television minister, somebody who's written a book, somebody who's held a seminar or whatever, you give where you're fed. And if you'll do that, you'll find out that God's blessing will begin to manifest itself in your life in a brand new way. Boy, those are powerful, powerful truths. Thank you, Jesus, for the great redemption that you've given us in redeeming us from the curse of the law. And so, Father, I pray specifically for people that the Holy Spirit's dealing with today, and I ask you to draw them into this grace of giving, that they would start trusting you and your promises, that they would prove you and give and see you open up the windows of heaven and pour them out a blessing. And Father, I thank you. I believe as they do that, that they are going to enter into a brand new level of prosperity. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.